last time on Tuesday, we were talking about um, the use of the word nigger uh, by various people um, in context, sometimes uh, trying to be trivializing, um, sometimes obviously agonized, but trying to disguise that fact. Uh, but uh, sometimes by one's neighbors, sometimes by oneself, but um, always uh, in a kind of non-trivial usage. Um, so today we're turning to the other side of the phenomenon and thinking about what it means to inhabit that adjective, nigger, what it means to embrace that as one's identity. So um, the, at least the Joe Christmas part of the story of Light in August um, is really about what it means for somebody to choose to be black, right? So it's very important to recognize that this is a volitional act. It is a decision, active, conscious decision. Um, but in that sense, it's also about someone poised um, on two contrary possibilities. Um, Joe Christmas could be either black or he could be white. So the either or possibility is something that actually becomes quite important in American literature outside of Faulkner. So I just wanted to uh, talk about one other work published very close to Light and August by Neville Lawson. Um, as we can see, Neville Lawson herself is someone uh, who could go either way. Um, she's classified as um, African-American because of the one drop rule. So if you have the slightest bit of African-American heritage, you're classified as black. So she's a black writer, um, but she, you know, she really could be anything. Um, and in fact, she disappeared after uh, in mid-career um, and just completely vanished uh, from public and until she was found dead. And um, there was a lot of surmises that actually she was passing all those years uh, when she disappeared and she wrote a novel uh, called Passing about two black women, one choosing to be married to someone who's identifiably black and the other choosing to pass as a white woman, but um, not succeeding, at least not being uh, very happy with that decision. Um, so passing, um, this was published in 1929, so very close to light in August. And um, in, as we can see from the book cover, it's really about the choice of someone who looks completely white, who is classified as black, but who chooses uh, to behave as a white person, live the life of a white person. So um, in Faulkner, what we see is also a kind of passing. So let's not forget that actually is very much similar to the dynamics in Neville Lawson's passing. It is someone, a man, who looks as white as the woman here, who actually is initially classified as white, but then chooses, in spite of his outward appearance, to embrace the life of black man. So it is a passing in the opposite direction. It is self-blackening. A white person blackening himself, there's no way he can blacken his interior, but at least he can try to blacken blacken his inside, try to blacken his emotions, his choice of companions, and um, all the rest of it. So this is what Joe Christmas decides to do um, when he starts on this 
run down this long street that goes from the south to Chicago um, to the north and analyst for 15 years he was on this street. Um, and that's what happens to him when he's on this 15 year long street. He lived with Negroes shunning white people. He ate with them, slept with them. Belligerent, unpredictable, uncommunicative. He now lived as man and wife with a woman who resembled an Evelyn coughing. At night, he would lie in bed beside her, sleepless, beginning to breathe deep and hard. He would do it deliberately, feeling even watching his white chest arch deeper and deeper within his ribcage, trying to breathe into himself the dark odor, the dark and inscrutable thinking and being of Negroes. With each suspiration, suspiration, trying to expel from himself the white blood and the white thinking and being. And all the while, his nostrils at the odor which he was trying to make his own would whiten and torten, his whole being writhe and strain with physical outrage and spiritual denial. So this is an incredible instance of self-blackening, somebody who doesn't have to be black, choosing against everything in him, his sense of smell, his sense of sight, his sense of touch, everything, against everything in him, uh, even though every inch of him is revolting against being classified in, as black and associated with blacks, that's what he chooses to do. So it's a very, very complicated um, kind of psychology. Usually when somebody identifies with someone who's they're not usually obviously identified with is because they really like that identity. But in this case, it's absolute loathing of being black and at the same time deciding to be black himself. So this is a much more complex psychology um, that we've seen um, in this novel. And I think to understand this, um, I think we need to borrow the terminology uh, from someone who talks about what he calls double consciousness. So this is um, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, a very um, important thinker um, and activist um, from the 19th century to the 20th, 20th century. Um, and he wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk, which you guys have probably heard of, um, came out quite a while before Light in August. And um, this is what he says about blacks. Let's not forget he's talking about blacks, people who look black. Um, this is what he says about the kind of complicated consciousness uh, that blacks have. It is a peculiar sensation, this double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, of measuring one's soul by the tape of the world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. Whatever feels is tuneless, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body. So um, this is, let's keep looking at this person. A person who looks black has no choice but to inhabit this double consciousness, both to be aware of oneself as oneself, you know, having a completely internal relation to oneself, but at the same time having another view superimposed upon oneself because of the way other people are looking 
at you. So it is this doubleness. One is looking at oneself through one's own eyes and then involuntarily through the eyes of other people. But we shouldn't forget that, in fact, Joe Christmas doesn't look like the black man. He looks like the male counterpart to this white-looking woman. So it's even more complicated than what Du Bois is suggesting. It's not the double consciousness of an obviously black man, but the double consciousness of a white-looking person who, even though he's repelled by the blackness, nonetheless embraces blackness. So it is just, you know, it's, it's, it's double consciousness redoubled um, in, in terms of its degree of complexity. Um, and today I'd like to talk about this kind of redoubled double consciousness in Faulkner um, along uh, three uh, lines of inquiry. One is um, obviously the importance of light and shadow, uh, which is advertised, dramatized in the title. Um, the other is something that we've sort of been talking about, which is the relation between a single individual and then a kind of population or uh, group or multisio today. That's the word that I'd like to introduce. Um, and then something that we've been talking about um, all the way through about the question of genre and whether the um, dynamics between comedy and tragedy. Um, but let's start with also um, given this this configuration. Um, I like to look at three characters, um, basically the two ends of the spectrum and then a midpoint. Um, I think that you know which two ends of the spectrum would be, would be Joe Christmas and Lena Grove, um, one tragic figure and the other comic figure. Um, and between the two of them, I like to put now a third figure, which is the Reverend Hightower. Uh, we've been talking about Reverend Hightower in, in various contexts, but I like to bring him to bear now on the two obvious protagonists of Light in August. Um, but first, starting with Joe Christmas, um, I'd like to talk about three moments, actually it's more than three, but three um, clusters of moments, um, revolving around the act of striking a match. Um, it is so, it's so obviously a pattern, um, a symbolic pattern, uh, revolving around that act that I think is really worth thinking about the three of them um, in sequence and in the interrelations. Um, so, the first instance of stri striking a match is um, is when he's contemplating um, killing Joanna. So, Christmas lit the cigarette and snapped the match toward the open door, watching the flame vanish in midair. Then he was listening for the light, trivial sound which the bad match would make when it struck the floor. And then it seemed to him that he heard it. Then it seemed to him, sitting on a cot in a dark room, that he was hearing a myriad sounds of no greater volume, voices, murmurs, whispers of trees, darkness, earth, people, his own voice, other voices evocative of names and times and places, which he had been conscious of all his life without knowing it, which were his life thinking, God, perhaps, and me, not knowing that too. He could see it like a printed sentence, full-born and already dead. God loves me too. Like the faded and weathered letters of last year's billboard. God loves me too. So there's a incredible passage. 
passage. Um, and I just want to say some obvious things about it and then come back to it. Um, but there's the striking of the match and then the dying out of the match. So the, literally, the light dying out. But what is also interesting is that actually as the light dies out, then it becomes a completely auditory um, moment. Um, it's all about the sounds that come to um, to Joe Christmas, uh, the voices is, he hears. Um, it, the light, the visual um, tableau completely gives way to an auditory soundscape, basically. Um, and then there's this weird kind of um, emergence of a kind of um, his own theology, right? You know, we've been talking about the importance of Calvin um, last time. Um, and the play, the repetition of the name Calvin in light and August. Um, and here is this obvious invocation um, of his relation to God and what it means to repeat that line, God loves me too. So just want to point out these obvious things, but uh, because this is the last class, um, I thought that you know, it would be good to, to bring back some other, one of the other two authors. So just to um, the obvious detail, of God appearing on the billboard. We actually have seen exactly this before in The Great Gatsby. Um, and I said, God knows what you've been doing, everything you've been doing. This is um, 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 um talking to George Wilson, Moto's uh, husband. Um, standing behind him, Michaelmas saw with a shock that he was looking at the eyes of Dr. T.J. Ackerberg, which had just emerged pale and enormous from the dissolving night. So this is George Wilson at the moment when he's on his starting out on his quest to kill the killer, what he think, the person who he thinks kills his wife, um, and pointing to this god on the billboard as the authority, invoking that authority um, to justify his the mission that is just beginning. Um, the, the other way in which Fitzgerald would also come into play is obviously the dynamics between the visual and the auditory. So this is something that we talked about before, um, about Basie's voice. For a moment, the last sunshine fell with romantic affection upon her glowing face. Her voice compelled me forward breathlessly as I listened. Then the glow faded, each light deserting her with a lingering regret, like children leaving a pleasant street at dusk. Right? So, quality of voice described in terms of a visual image. And finally, the great Gatsby and the great self-made man in American literature, but described by Fitzgerald as a quasi-religious self-making. The truth was that J. Gatsby of West Egg, Long Island, sprang from his platonic conception of himself. He was a son of God, a phrase which, if it means anything, means just that that he must be about his father's business, the service of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty. So he invented himself, just the sort of Jay Gatsby, that a 17-year-old boy would be likely to invent, and to this conception he was faithful to the end. So it is very hard to ignore the centrality of religion in both the Great Gatsby and in Light and August. Um, in the case of the Great Gatsby, um, the religious language is really used to um, underwrite a special kind of self-making, what it means to be the son of God um, in the 20th century and in a debased environment. Um, and that's the kind of self-making 
that um, that 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 Fitzgerald is talking uh, relatively non-racialized, even though we've seen that there's a little bit of race in the Great Gatsby as well. So against that that uh, example of um, Fitzgerald, let's look one more time um, at what Faulkner is doing with exactly that configuration, the billboard, the interplay between the visual and the auditory, and some invocation of God. Um, it seems that when the light dies out, when we all, our only relation to light is by way of a dead match, right? Dead match, and then it hits the ground, and then the light goes out completely, and instead what we get is all the sounds uh, that come to Joel Christmas, and he becomes an involuntary, strictly passive, recipient of sounds that come to him. And that really is the central function of Joe Christmas. We've talked over and over, we've talked before about how passive he is, that he's less an actor than a recipient of either the goodwill, or in this case, the ill will coming from other people. Um, so he really is uh, a blank slate um, that on which other people, the entire community, um, can write the collective signature. Um, he really is the bearer, um, and it's not a very good metaphor, considering that we're looking at an auditory image, uh, but just to switch to visual um, image briefly, um, he is the bearer of the collective signature of that community. So the transition from light to darkness in this moment, and the transition from uh, from the input coming in to the eye and the input coming through the ear is the increasing or the dramatized passivity of Joe Christmas, that he's really completely a blank page that everyone else writes the deeds onto. But there's this further complication because this is a racialized landscape. It seems to give us a racialized version of a Calvinist theology that we talked about last time. Right? So just want to think about what it means that, okay, the first italicized um, cluster was God, perhaps, and me not knowing that too, and then God loves me too, repeated twice. It's almost as if the only thing Joe Christmas is sure about is that God loves other people. That is an undisputed statement, right? So God loves other people, maybe God loves everyone else. Maybe he loves me too. So it can be a more devastating um, uh, self-reflection or you know, speculation about uh, yourself is that every el everyone else comes before you. You basically, you are an afterthought, and maybe not even an afterthought in God's mind. Um, and even if it is an afterthought, it is written on God's consciousness. It's written like that, those faded and weathered letters of last year's billboard, um, that you're that unimportant, that negligible to God. So it definitely is an um, interesting uh, racialized variation on predestination. So just it's worth going back to Calvin for that reason and see why it actually lends itself 
so readily to this particular negative kind of racialization. Uh, last time we talked about the original sin and so on. So this is another very famous uh, statement coming from Calvin on predestination. Um, and you know, there's nobody more upfront than Calvin about predestination and what it means. By an eternal and immutable counsel, God has once for all determined those whom he would admit to salvation and those whom he would condemn to destruction. To those whom he devotes to condemnation, the gate of hell, the gate of life is closed by justice and irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment. So the gate of life is closed by just and irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment. There's no way you can quarrel with God. It's his decision. He decides that you're going to be condemned. Um, it doesn't make any sense to you, obviously, if you are the condemned. Um, you can't make any sense of it. It's completely incomprehensible. But at the same time, if you're Calvinist, you also have to believe that it is irreprehensible, that God has every right to condemn you, even though it's from your point of view, it seems completely arbitrary. So that really is the meaning of predestination in a particular interpretation of a race, racialized context, is that to be black is to be predestined in that particular way. It's always to come second, always to be an afterthought, and maybe even less than an afterthought in the mind of God. And that is what Joe Christmas metaphorically as well as pragmatically chooses to, given his own sense of being so negligible in the world. Um, so you know that, that would be one interpretation of why he chooses to blacken himself, even though he doesn't have to. Um, so this is Faulkner's version of predestination, self-blackening of a white-looking man. Um, it completely honors the logic of the gate of life being closed by just and irreprehensible but incomprehensible judgment. And it's always under the shadow of race. So I would say that the part of Light in August um, that is associated with Joe Christmas is very much the regime of shadows. Um, and Faulkner is actually quite heavy-handed about how often in, you know, uh, we said it, the, the, the original title of Light in August uh, was Dark House. It could also be the shadows of August because <laughs> so much of the book is really about shadows. So, um, and the, the shadows tend to emerge um, in the context of striking a match. So let's go on to the next um, moment, next, next episode of Joe Christmas striking a match or turning on the um, lighting of lamb. Um, this is the moment after the the dialogue that we've looked at last time with Joanna offering to send him to a black, to study with a black lawyer and turning over all her funds to him. Um, and then the next thing that she asks him to do is to kneel with her and pray. So this is um, all in that context. Light the lamb, she said. It won't need any light, he said. Light the lamb. No, he said. He stood over the bed. He held the razor in his hand. But it was not open yet. But it, she did not speak again. And then his body seemed to walk away from him. It went to the table, and his hands laid the razor on the table, 
and found the land and struck the land. So very heavy-handed alienation of Joe Christmas from his body, right? It's not Joe Christmas that's doing the walking. His body seemed to walk away from him. It's not Joe Christmas who's uh, laying the razor on the table. It's his hands that is doing it and his hands that is striking the match to right the So it's just the, the action coming strictly just from fragmented body parts. And the consequence, so just and highlighting the other passivity of Joe Christmas himself is as if individual fragmented body parts have agency but not Joe Christmas as a whole. Um, the consequence of lighting this lamp is this. This is what we see when the lamp is lit. Um, he actually sees something else that casts a shadow on the war. It held an old-style single action cap and ball revolver, almost as long and heavier than a small rifle. But the shadow of it and of her arm and hand on the wall did not waver at all. The shadow of both monsters, the cock-hammer monsters, back hooked and viciously poised like the arch head of a snake. It did not waver at all. And her eyes did not waver at all. They were as still as the round black ring of the pistol muscle. But there was no heat in them, no fury. But he was not watching them. He was watching the shadow pistol on the wall. He was watching the cock shadow of the hammer flicked away. And it's almost as if it's irrelevant what is actually going on. The most important thing is the play of that shadow on the wall. But we know, do know that the shadow is produced by that revolver. Um, but here we have actually the symmetry of weaponry, right? So Joe Christmas is come fully equipped. He has the razor in his hand, even though um, it's not open. And Joanna has the revolver already, and she thinks that it's ready to go. And that's what Joe Christmas is seeing. So this is the outcome of that particular re relationship that is completely under the shadow. Right, so, you know, Joanna would call him nigger, nigger, or negro, negro, negro. Um, that relationship is completely under the shadow of race. So this is actually the early moment when she talks about race as a curse, as an eternal curse, as the equivalent of predestination in America. But after that, I seem to see them for the first time, not as people, but as a thing, a shadow in which I live, we live all white people, all other people. I thought of all the children coming forever and ever into the world, white, with a black shadow already falling upon them before they drew breath. And I seem to see the black shadow in the shape of a cross. I'm not even going to read you the whole thing. You guys remember this passage. It's very much the invocation of the black shadow as the modern incarnation of the Calvinist doctrine of original sin and a curse that falls upon you uh, before you were even born. Before, when you were a baby, before you've done anything, even before you were when you're in your mother's womb, that shadow has already fallen upon you. So it's a very, very extreme um, version of the Calvinist theology. And right here, we also see it not only as theology, but as dramatic action, as the shadow of that pistol um, on the wall. And we now know the the final uh, moment of striking Joe Christmas, striking a match. Um, then he paused and he struck a match. 
and examined the pistol in the puny dying glare. The match burned down and went out. Yet he still seemed to see the ancient thing with his two loaded chambers, the one upon which the hammer had already fallen and which had not exploded, and the other upon which no hammer had yet fallen, but upon which a hammer had been planned to fall. For her and for me, he said. His arm came back and threw. He heard the pistol crash once through the undergrowth. Then there was no sound again for her and for me. So this is the basically the tragic plot in uh, *Light and Art*. There's, you know, there's no denying this, the importance of tragedy, uh, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it depends on how much weight we assign to the Joe Christmas Joanna Burden section of the novel. Um, if we were to give primacy to that section, then the the symmetry of weapons, the razor and the pistol, um, then the t- both the both chambers loaded in Joanna's pistol, that she really means uh, for the two of them to die together. This is the appropriate end for a tragic narrative, uh, even though Joe Christmas doesn't die from that. Um, nonetheless, the stage is really set for that particular tragic outcome. Um, so there's really not a whole lot more. Um, you know, th- it, it couldn't be any other outcome. There could be no, no other ending uh, for Joe Christmas and Joanna. Either one of them would have to die, or two of them would have to die. Um, but there's really no other. Faulkner can't really think of any other ending for the two of them. Um, so let's. But thank God they're not the only ones in light and order. So we're beginning to move. Um, to somewhat to the other side, towards the other side of the spectrum. Um, and uh, actually a very interesting transitional figure, uh, or someone who's at midpoint uh, between Joe Christmas and Lena Grove, is Hightower. Um, and um, the, actually the, the image of the light and shadow, um, and the kind of contest between light and shadow, is also um, the visual landscape um, in which Hightower is situated. Um, so this is the moment when Byron Bunch um, and, and Joe Christmas' grandparents, at this point we sort of know that they are related, um, but, but basically Byron Bunch, um, going to Hightower and begging him to tell a lie so that Joe Christmas can have an alibi. So Byron said, it's really your word against Joe Brown's. If you would just say that he was with you that night, that would be better, stronger evidence than anything coming from Jacob. So Hightower could have told a lie, and the lynching would have happened. But this is what he does. Because now Hightower is shouting, I won't do it, I won't, with his hands raised and clenched, his face sweating, his lips lifted upon his clenched and rotting teeth, from about which the long sagging of flabby and putty-colored flesh falls away. Suddenly his voice rises high again. Get out, he screams. Get out of my house. Get out of my house. Then he falls forward onto the desk, his face between his extended arms and his clenched fist. As the two old people moving ahead of him, Byron looks back from the door. He sees that Hightower has not moved. His bald head and his extended and clenched fisted arms lie full in the pool of light from the shaded lamp 
Um, so th this particular visual image suggests that Hightower is completely poised between light and shadow. Um, there's light, but it's coming from a shaded line. And he's given an opportunity actually to do something significant in the world. To have saved Joe Christmas would have been a significant deed in the life of someone who actually has not done a lot of significant things. Um, you know, that's a, he's, he's a very, his life could have been much more consequential, and in fact, it hasn't been all that consequential. So saving Joe Christmas would have been a consequential action, um, but Hightower just cannot bring himself to do it for all kinds of reasons, and we can speculate that, um, why he chooses not to do it, but that is a moment when his voice is very high as befitting his name, Hightower. But what that very high voice is doing is turning away this opportunity. I, mean, I think all of us would have different decisions whether or not to lie at that moment. Um, his decision is not to lie and to allow the violence to erupt, as everyone can see that it's about to. Um, but this is not the, so this is the moment when he's sort of um, in this light from the shade, pool of light from the shaded lamp. But there's um, another possibility for Hightower that comes actually only five pages after that. Um, so Faulkner actually, I would say, is quite gentle towards Hightower in terms of the final place um, given to him um, in the story, in the novel. Um, so we know that once before, Hightower has tried to deliver a baby, right? So the lady of a black woman, and he, the doctor is supposed to come, and the doctor arrives too late. So Hightower delivers the baby, and the baby is dead, and then the rumors go all around the town that the baby is his, and so on. So uh, it turns out that he actually gets a second chance to deliver a baby, and of course we know whose baby it is. Uh, but he gets to deliver the baby because the doctor also arrives too late a second time. So the doctor arrived too late this time also. Byron had to wait for him to dress. Byron was sent to fetch the doctor. Byron had to wait for him to dress. He was an oldish man now and fussy and somewhat disgruntled at having been awakened at this hour. Then he had to hunt for the switch key to his car, which he kept in a small metal strong box, the key to which, in turn, he could not find at once. So, when they reached the cabin at last, the east was primrose color, and there was already a hint of the swift sun of summer. And again, the two men, both older now, met at the door of a one-room cabin, the professional having lost again to the amateur. For as he entered the door, the doctor heard the infant cry. So it is crucial that this is a repetition. This is a replay of an earlier scenario. Faulkner emphasizes this over again. It's the second time, right? Too late this time, also, also, and again. So it turns out that actually the second time around makes all the difference in the world because at this time, Hightower is able to deliver the baby successfully. This is actually the consequential action that he manages to do that is granted him. He's not granted the, the, the whatever, the um, bravery, or you know, I don't even know what word to use for if he had chosen to lie. He, he's not granting that whatever mental ability or mental toughness uh, to 
to lie to lie for for um, for Joe Christmas, but his grant is something that actually is both more uncontroversial and which can obviously deny outcome to delivery of a baby when the professional doctor is too late this time too. So it turns out that Faulkner is giving us not only and that that is why the double consciousness is redoubled, or maybe redoubled again in light and August, is that there are two meanings to being second. Um, in Joe Christmas's usage, God loves me too. Being second means that basically you are nobody, that you are nothing, that you count for nothing at all. You're always going to be an afterthought. God loves me too. Um, that's what being second is, means losing out and maybe not even having the dignity of losing out, just meaning being a non-contender, really. Um, in a field where everyone else is going to be ahead of you. Uh, being a non-contender um, is what being second, having the word to attached to you. Um, but that's not the only meaning of to or in a variation also. So the second time when we see that in the case of Hightower, the doctor arrived too late this time also. Second actually means a second chance that you messed up the first time around. Or, you know, he didn't actually it really wasn't so much messing up. I mean, you know, some babies are just born dead. Um, but in any case, with some messing up, you know, it wasn't a completely satisfying, wasn't a satisfying outcome, wasn't an acceptable outcome to most people. Um, so you messed up the first time around, but you get a second chance to do it one more time. So being second actually completely supports that second usage. And that is why, to my mind, um, Hightower is such an important midpoint um, between Joe Christmas and Lena Grove, is that he's actually taking us um, halfway um, in the direction of a much more affirmative view of you know, what is possible, um, much more affirmative view of the world, um, but it is important to recognize that this is actually a completely accidental development, right? There's no reason, no logical uh, reason why the doctor should arrive too late. And it's only because the doctor arrives too late that Hightower gets to deliver the baby. The doctor arrives too late because he's always doesn't want to be, wake, to be waking up in the middle of the night, can't find his key to the car. Um, all these accidental developments um, contribute to, and the doctor is a total, other than the fact that he's appeared once before, he really is an absolute stranger to a novel. He's such a marginal character. So the second chance coming to Thai Tower comes to him by virtue of the pregnancy and the childbirth of a total stranger, Lena Grove, and the accidental lateness of another accidental person, the doctor. So we're beginning to get into um, a, an arena where it's really not Hightower's action alone, but the combined actions of all these other people, um, many of whom are strangers to him. It is the combined action of all these people that produce an outcome. So this is a moment to introduce some um, theoretical speculation on this point. 
And um, James uh, Zruwicki is um, a staff writer for The New Yorker. Um, and he, a while back, he wrote a book, I mean, not a while back, but ten, I think five, ten years ago, uh, wrote a book called The Wisdom of Prowls, uh, which actually got a lot of attention when it came out. And his basic argument um, is that, um, that the collective decision uh, or, or just the collective um, conjecture, anyone, you know, when there's a shortage of information, the collective conjecture, the collective guesswork, the aggregation of guesses from a lot of people, that aggregation is always going to be tr closer to the truth than the single guess or a single individual. So it's actually a kind of complicated mathematical argument. It's about the aggregation of conjecture um, being better um, having a much higher likelihood of being closer to the truth. So it's, even though it doesn't talk about statistics, actually it's very uh, statistical in its, in, in its mode of thinking um, that is about chances and likelihood and so on. Um, the other book um, that is also relevant and actually has the title, um, Maltitillin, is by Michael Hart and Antonio Negri. Um, is a, I won't burden you with the full substance of that argument, but just one um, I mean, it's really not, not about what we're talking about. But there, there is one line um, that is relevant to what we've been talking about, um, which is about the thinking about what the meaning um, multitude could have. For them, multitude is the cooperative convergence of subjects. Only the multitude, through its practical experimentation, will offer the models and determine when and how the possible becomes the real. Right? So it has some, um, it has some uh, resemblance to this uh, wiki argument, which is that it is about how the possible can become the real. And it turns out that the collective conjecture, the aggregation of individual guesswork, or individual the aggregation of action from a lot of people, would put us in closer contact to how the possible can become the real. Um, so these are the two sort of contemporary um, lines of thinking about groups and about human populations as opposed to human individuals as the agents of history. Um, it turns out that actually there's also a 19th century <laughs> president for uh, Faulkner. And we're so used to thinking of the Scarlet as a condemnation as the bigotry of Puritans. But let's not forget, actually, that Hawthorne's a very important statement about novelty that runs completely counter to our stereotypical vision of Puritans. When an uninstructed multitude attempts to see with its eyes, it is exceedingly apt to be deceived. When, however, it forms its judgment, as it usually does on the intuitions of his great and warm heart. The conclusions thus obtained are often so profound and so unerring as to possess the character of truth supernaturally with you. Um, it's an astonishing statement um, from the scholar saying that, in fact, that the great and warm heart is not the attribute of a single individual, that, in fact, the human heart in its individual embodiment is likely to have lots and lots of shadows in it. And the only way that those shadows can be relatively deactivated 
is when we think in the aggregate. I mean, I think this is really interesting theory. Um, I'm just offering it to you as a possibility. Um, so, but I do think that this is what Bachman um, thinks in his, the use of total strangers, um, doctors, you know, people who have no relation to one another in Leibniz. So basically, his notion of the novelty is that it's randomized, it's statistical, it's populational, and it's chancy. Um, and this is the moment, and I think this is the extreme moment um, in light in August, when right before the, the killing, actually, of Joe Christmas, this is actually what we get. It's utterly doesn't go with the deed that follows, but this is what Foster gives us. In the lambent suspension of August, into which night is about to fully come, it seems to engender and surround itself with a faint glow like a halo. The halo is full of faces. The faces are not shaped with suffering, not shaped with anything, not horror, pain, or even reproach. They are peaceful, as though they have escaped an apotheosis is only is around them. So I don't need to talk anymore about that, just that the halo is not the halo around a single face. It is full of faces. Um, and it is that's the reason why he goes right back to how he starts out by talking about the kindness of strangers. And this kindness of strangers is not even ironized by everything that has happened in between page one of the Light in August and the last page, last pages of Light in August. The kindness of strangers, yes, it has to recognize and take into account and fully acknowledge and put in the foreground the cruelty of one's neighbors, no question about it. It has to encompass all of that. But the kindness of strangers remains. And so he's totally happy to bring in a person never before mentioned in Latin August in the last pages of the novel. They lives in the eastern part of the state, a furniture repairer and dealer who recently made a trip into Tennessee to get some old pieces of furniture, which he had bought by correspondence completely extraneous detail um, at the end of the novel. And the reason this furniture dealer um, is in the picture suddenly is that he is there to witness this ongoing courtship between Lena Grove and uh, Byron Bunch. So let's see what Faulkner thinks about marriage. Um, and it turns out that he actually has thought, given some thought to his rival, they, Relation between the two of them. I'm not always, uh, relations not always cordial. Uh, so it is from the writing to Malcolm Kelly. I'll write to Hemingway, provoked to have to marry three times to find out that marriage is a failure. Apparently, man can be cured of drugs, gambling, biting his nails, and picking his nose, but not of marrying. So this is what we're addicted to is marriage. Doesn't matter, you know, you've failed a thousand times, you still want to get married. So given the fact this totally um, clear-eyed evaluation of the outcome of marriage, but also the fact that it's just going to be an ongoing addiction, um, we can maybe go, we should not be surprised by what comes at the end of Light in August. And I just want to, because we're talking about him, we just want to remind you that we've seen this kind of structure before marriage structure, right? The ending of um, the poem developed, he laid flat on the brown, Pine needle floor of the forest, his chin on his folded arms. Beginning of the novel, end of the novel, he could feel his heart beating against the pine needle floor of the forest. Ending of Light in August, or rather the beginning and ending. 
beginning. Although I have not been quite a month on the road, I'm already in Mississippi and ending of flight in August. Here we ain't been coming from Alabama for two months, and now it's already Tennessee. So it is Lena Grove counting on the kindness of strangers and counting on the statistical fact that to every Lucas Bush, there will always be a barren bunch. Because marriage is an addiction, so that's why it is a comedy. Thank you very much.